with some thoughts about the thief on the cross. Here's Pastor Ed Ray. He didn't do a lot of stuff that churches say you have to do, that pastors say you have to do, that evangelists say you have to do. There's no record of him ever going to church. <laughs> In fact, it doesn't even say that he read the Bible. No First Communion? No tithing? Whoa. <laughs> no baptism? He didn't do anything that churches say he had to do. Jesus said, assuredly, I say to you today, today, you're with me in paradise. We're going to Abraham's bosom. Hang on, buddy. <laughs> we'll be there. Just a minute. I saw what you saw. We're going. Zion, now filled with hands, and in this place, God will dwell with man. Sick be healed, and the crippled stand, singing we're so accustomed to seeing bridges these days that we no longer marvel at them. It's believed that the first bridge was erected way back in 2650 BC across the Nile River. However, the most important bridge was built in A.D. 30 at Golgotha, where Jesus on the cross bridged the gulf between man and God. Welcome to another Grow in Grace as we near the climax of our journey through the book of Luke. Pastor Ed Ray is here now to have us consider the price that was paid on our behalf by a loving Savior nearly 2,000 years ago on a hill called Calvary. Luke's account is in chapter 23. Pastor Ed first turns our attention to Simon, the man enlisted to carry the cross. So he's weak, and he staggers out, and he falls down in front of a man who is coming, Simeon, a Cyrenian, who is coming from the country. He's coming in from the country through the Damascus Gate, the northern gate, and he has come from what we call today Libya. He is uh, from the city of Cyrene. It's traditionally a Christian area. In fact, the writer of the Gospel of Mark was said to have been born in this same city where Simeon is from. Now, Simeon is probably an educated man. This is a university city. One of Socrates' disciples went there and started a school of philosophy. It's a beautiful area. You'd think it'd dry, but it's not. There's the archaeological site today. It's right next to the sea. Kairi, where the name comes from, means spring in the Greek language. So it's a very lush valley that it's in, and it's a seaport. So he's traveled a great distance, probably his only trip, his once-in-a-lifetime trip to Jerusalem for the Passover. And he gets there to celebrate the Passover, and there's a hubbub going on. There's a mob scene going on in the streets. And he pushes his way through the crowd, and he finds himself right in front of this criminal who falls down, and then he feels a spear on his shoulder. It's called the right, the Hungarian right. A Roman soldier could conscript any person who was there. And if they put the point of their sword or their spear on your shoulder, you will <laughs> uh, do what they say. In fact, you're required to carry their burden a mile. That's why in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, if they ask you to go a mile, go two. And so Simeon feels the point of steel against his shoulder. And he takes up probably just the crossbeam of 
across and the stave, the center portion, was permanently in the ground. And he picks it up and he begins to walk with Jesus. I don't think he's happy about it. He doesn't realize who's with him, but he's going to. In fact, early church tradition tells us that he was radically changed by that moment. He followed Jesus to the cross in the Gospel of Mark 15:21. It says they compelled a certain man, Simeon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. Mark just gives these two names, Alexander and Rufus, because the early church obviously knew who they were. His two sons were famous. So this man was radically changed by this encounter with Jesus, just like most of us in this room. That's what happens when you have an encounter with God the Son. He changes your perspective, your view of life. You never see life the same again. And this man would raise godly children who became very well known. So it's from this area that he comes and he takes up the cross and then a huge multitude is following Jesus, verse 27. A great multitude of people followed Jesus and women who also mourned and lamented him. They're weeping, they're crying, although it was the majority of the crowd that demanded the switch, the exchange between Barabbas and Jesus. There were many there that day that loved him and they couldn't believe their eyes. Here's the one who healed sick people, who only did good, who would touch blind people and they could see, deaf people and they could hear, people that couldn't speak suddenly were able to, leprosy, digits missing, dead people raised. Why? Why is he dying? And these women are weeping over it. Jesus stops and he gives them a prophetic statement, something that's prophecy that's going to happen. Verse 28, he turns to them and says, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourself and your children because there's something coming. There's a terrible prophetic warning here of what's going to happen in Jerusalem within 40 years. Verse 29, for indeed the days are coming in which they will say, blessed are the barren, the wombs that have never born, that don't have any children, the breasts that have never nursed. He's saying that this time coming within 40 years when people would be happier if they didn't have any children, they had to worry about feeding and taking care of. And Josephus, the historian, wrote that when this city was under siege for a year, that it got so bad, the famine inside the city, that people were forced to cannibalize the dead bodies and some women to eat their own dead children. And we'll just stop there. You get the idea. Verse 30. And then they will begin to say, to the mountains fall on us and to the hills covers, just kill us, quick. And this is a prophecy from Hosea. It's going to be so bad there. The Romans killing men, women, and children in the street, about one and a half million people killed in the street, according to Josephus, and another 97,000 hauled off into slavery. And then he makes a, an even more cryptic statement, verse 31. For if they do these things to the green wood, what will be done to the dry? It was a common saying evidently of that day. If the Romans would do such evil on Jesus, full of life, imagine what they would do to the nation of Israel that was dead spiritually. Warning from Jesus. So Simon is deeply impacted. Then other criminals are watching, starting in verse 32, his identity. Two others criminals led with them to be put to death. And uh, this is a 
to fulfill the prophecy about the Messiah, Isaiah 53, verse 12. He was numbered among the transgressors, the sinners, the criminals, that said 600 years before Isaiah predicted this. He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sins of many, and he interceded for the transgressors. He prayed for those who were, in fact, guilty. Now, this isn't surprising that he was called among sinners because he was that way through his whole ministry. He was numbered among the sinners, if you will. He was accused of being a Sabbath breaker, of being a drunkard, of being a glutton, of hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes. I mean, this man eats with sinners, they said. Of course, that's the good news for you and I because we are sinners, and he invites us to come. These two criminals, lawbreakers, literally evil workers, Matthew 27 says they were robbers or thieves that used the money they got to support an insurrection. Evidently, they were part of Barabbas' band. The leader and two of his generals probably were going to be crucified that day as a statement to the rest of Jerusalem. Don't come against the clenched Roman fist or you will be crucified. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, cranion, where we get the word cranium, the Greek word, skull. When you come to this place called skull, and if you would go to Israel, and again, I recommend that you do, every believer should, and you come and look at the side of this cliff that at Gordon's Calvary, you'll see two very obvious eye holes and it looks like a skull and a nose hole. When the Romans cleared the northern road around the northern part of the city, they blasted and they, they worked their way through solid rock. And it just so happened that it came out looking like a skull, round top, two eyes, and a nose hole. It, it's offset a little bit by the smell of diesel. The Airbus station is right next to it. But uh, you can't miss that it looks like a skull. So it's there that they took him. It's right outside the gate. It's a prominent place because the Romans were using this as a deterrent. They wanted everybody to be afraid. It was that kind of a statement to everyone around them. And there it says they crucified him. That's so simple, the words, but so penetrating. It says that Jesus was led like a lamb to the slaughter. I take that to mean that he allowed them to crucify him. Now, now, normally, the Romans would scourge the criminal who was being put to death or the victim, and then the soldiers would put their knees on his arm and nail it with a big square Roman nail through the, the portion we would call the wrist. The Greek word for hands includes everything from the fingers to the elbow. And so they held him down and then pinned him, and of course, flailing and fighting and screaming, but I read Jesus led as a lamb to a slaughter that he extended his own arm and left it there. Did he wince? Oh, did he cry out? Doesn't say that he did. But man, it makes you want to grit your teeth, doesn't it? And they crucified him there. And these other two criminals together, one on the right, one on the left. We're recalling what Christ went through for us on the cross, today on Grow in Grace. It's a part of Pastor Ed Ray's series in Luke. And again, we're in chapter 23. Now, there's an interesting side note that I want you to see that they're doing exactly what the law said is supposed to happen 
for someone who had committed a capital crime under the Jewish law, too. It's Deuteronomy 21-22. If a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day, so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is accursed of God, carries a curse from God. That's exactly what Paul wrote to the Galatians in the New Testament, Galatians 3.13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs from a tree. So they were fulfilling the Roman law. They were fulfilling the law of Moses. They were doing it the way that they were supposed to. Not a coincidence. This is all part of God's foreknowledge and plan. Verse 34, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. They failed to recognize the Messiah when he was right there in front of them. When he did all the works that the prophets said that he would do, they still refused to accept that he was the Messiah. Why? Because he wasn't doing it the way they wanted him to. They wanted the Messiah to be the military ruler who would get rid of the Romans, who would lead them back into their glory days when they were once the most important nation in the Middle East. This man was suffering and dying. He can't be the Messiah, they're thinking. 1 Corinthians 2.8, Paul said, for if they had understood it, if they would not have crucified the Lord. Of course, that doesn't mean that they deserve forgiveness, but he gives it anyway. Someone is watching Someone is listening to these words. Father, forgive them. What is that? They're crucifying him? People stood by, verse 35, looking on. And the rulers, the religious rulers, they sneered. Notice what they say. He saved others. Oh, they've been listening to Jesus' message. They understood what he said. They knew what the people, the common people were saying. Well, I got saved by Jesus. Saved? Well, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Messiah, the chosen of God. Now, this has to be one of the most foolish statements ever made by a human being in all of history. What bothers us about words is that the way we read Scripture, those in eternity, have perfect recall in hell. They know exactly what they did and said, everything. Can you imagine being one of those that has said this? But in fact, every one of us rejected Jesus in our lives at some time. And the soldiers also mocked him, and they offered him sour wine. Matthew says it was with gall. Mark says that it was myrrh. Myrrh is interesting. That's what one of the magi brought to him as a baby. Myrrh was a mild analgesic when mixed with some liquid. Jesus refused to drink it. He was going to take the full impact of my sin and yours on himself. They said, if you are king of the Jews, save yourself. That's an interesting statement. It was a temptation for Jesus to save himself. Man, I'd have flicked a little finger and crispy critters on the spot. 
was only a temptation for God the Son. It wouldn't have been a temptation for us. We're not capable of doing anything. But Jesus made a choice to be crucified to pay for saving us. And there's an inscription, verse 30, probably around his neck as he walked there and then it was put over his head, written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, saying this is the king of the Jews. Now, Pilate saw great irony in in writing it this way in three languages, and, and the high priest hated it. They went to Pilate and tried to get it changed over in John 19. Therefore, the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate said, I have written what I have written. Live with it. (laughs) There it is. This is the king of the Jews. I believe Pilate understood this was, that this was, in fact, the king of the Jews. He didn't understand he was also the king of kings and the Lord of lords over the whole universe. This was God the Son. But he did understand that this one was a king. Remember me, verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed Jesus, saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. Man, what arrogance. What a steeled heart against God. And thus, I was, probably most of us in this room, knew that time in our life where we were hard against God. This man was locked up. It astounds me to see people lock up all the way to their deathbed. I'm, you know, having worked in a hospital for years and I've had the privilege of seeing many people come to Christ right before they die. And this is gonna be one of those deals. But there's also many who have said, no, I, I'm not, I refuse. This man had steeled himself against God like Stalin. That's what Stalin means in Russian. It means steel. That wasn't his real name. Joseph Stalin was the dictator that was responsible for at least 20 million Russians. Some say 35 million in the Gulag. A brutal man. But his daughter was speaking to a a pastor, Malcolm Muggeridge, in England when they were making a movie of Stalin's life. And she told Dr. Muggeridge, she said, that as Stalin lay dying, plagued with terrifying hallucinations, quote, he suddenly sat halfway up in bed, clenched his fist towards the heavens once more, and then fell back upon his pillow and was dead. He died with a clenched fist towards God. What's even more ironic about that is Stalin once was in seminary studying to be a priest, a man who was given his life to follow God and to be a priest. What happened? He ran into a philosopher named Nietzsche, and Nietzsche said, might is right. Hitler took that and ran with it. Communists took it and ran with it too. Stalin made it his manifesto, and it would change his life so radically that he hated Christianity. He hated all religions, but especially Christianity. It bent him. This man was bent, never to be straightened. But the other, verse 40, answered, rebuking him, saying, don't you not even fear God? You don't fear God, seeing you're under the same judgment, condemnation. You're under judgment. We're going to die here, is what he's saying. Hello, are you paying attention? Don't you fear God? Well, I submit to you that I don't believe you can 
understand the fear of God until you understand the grace of God. I don't mean that you can't be afraid of God. I was afraid of God. As a kid growing up, I was in a church that would tell hellfire and brimstone stories. And you'd feel so guilty, you were just trashed and walk out. That was afraid of God. But the fear of the Lord is a reverential respect for God. You honor him. And you won't get that until you get that he died for you, that he offers us a free gift of grace. So when you understand the grace of God, then you understand the fear of God. But the other thief is saying, man, you're out of your mind. You're going to stand before God. You're going to be judged. We're facing condemnation. And we're guilty. Verse 41, for we indeed justly. Ooh, here it is. This is the man's repentance. This is his confession of his sins. He's saying, that man's innocent, we're guilty. And when you get to that point, you're that close to surrendering your life to God. When you figure out that Jesus is innocent and I'm guilty and I need the innocent to die for me, you're there. He says, we receive this due reward of our deeds. We earn this. We're guilty, but this man has done nothing. He didn't deserve anything that's happening to him. Moving on. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, don't miss that word, Lord. He gets it. The sign, it's right. (laughs) We should thank Pilate for that sign. This man did. He read it and said, you are a king, aren't you? King of the Jews? Maybe more. We don't know how this all fit together, but I've watched it happen in people's minds who have rejected God all their life, and then at the last minute, they'll go, oh, no, he is God. He died for me. That's what this man's saying. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Kingdom, how do you know that he had a kingdom? He gets it. Maybe it was a rabbi that told him when he was a kid. Maybe it was his mom. Somehow he puts all the pieces together. He says, I'm guilty, and then his eyes are open. When you come to Jesus humbly and admit your sin, your eyes are open. His eyes are open. He says, you're the Lord. Now, he prays this little prayer, Lord, remember me. It's not a good sinner's prayer. You know, you can theologically say, well, you know, there's some stuff missing here. He didn't do a lot of stuff that churches say you have to do, that pastors say you have to do, that evangelists say you have to do. There's no record of him ever going to church. <laughs> In fact, it doesn't even say that he read the Bible. No first communion, no tithing, whoa. <laughs> no baptism. He didn't do anything that churches say he had to do. Jesus said, assuredly, I say to you today, today, you're with me in paradise. We're going to Abraham's bosom. Hang on, buddy. (laughs) We'll be there. Just a minute. I saw what you saw. We're going. Isn't that encouraging? No matter what we've done in our past, and even if we're on our deathbed, the Lord can save us just like he did for the thief on the cross. Thanks for joining us for Grow in Grace with Pastor Ed Ray. For a CD copy of today's message from the book of Luke, Call 844-77-GRACE. That's 844-77-GRACE. Or listen online at thepackinghouse.org when it's most convenient. And to help you grow in grace, we'd like to recommend Pastor Ed's daily devotional. 
It's accessible online at thepackinghouse.org. Our featured resource this month is Tale of Three Kings, authored by Gene Edwards. And I'm sure we've all experienced pain, loss, or heartache at the hands of other believers, and it can be a confusing time. But rather than turn bitter and angry, you can experience healing and hope. Gene Edwards looks at David, Saul, and Absalom. I know you'll be touched as you read this story. We'll send it your way for a gift of any amount to grow in grace. And please remember, it's your support that helps us bring these teachings to the radio every day. Call 844-77-GRACE. That's 844-77-GRACE. We love hearing from our listeners. Let us know how we can pray for you and what you're getting out of this study. Tell us your story of how you've been growing in grace. That would be so encouraging to hear. Drop us an email today at packinghouseradio at aol.com. That's packinghouseradio at aol.com. And then join us next time as together we grow in grace through a study in Luke with Pastor Ed Ray. May God richly bless you as you grow in grace. This program is listener-supported and brought to you by the Packing House Christian Fellowship in Redlands, California. Zion, now filled with hands, and in this place gotta dwell with man. Sick be healed and the crippled stand singing hallelujah. My kingdom built with the blood of my son, selfless sacrifice for everyone. Faith, hope, love, and harmony. I said let this world know me by your